my pleasure to interview Jan Harrison today. Uh, Jan is an amazing artist uh, who I have worked with for many years. My name is Linda Weintraub, and I've had the privilege of writing about Jan's work in my latest book. An entire chapter is devoted to it in, in the making. Uh, she has been in shows that I've curated, and I've had many enjoyable times visiting her studio. Uh, I was delighted to read the extensive article that she wrote for the current issue of Performing Arts Journal, because it lays out her intriguing career in a very methodical and uh, well-constructed manner. What interested me so much, because I am so familiar with her work, is that despite that familiarity, there is a lot of material that still seems ready to be explored, and I look forward to doing that with the listeners of this podcast. The very first sentence of this very long essay consolidates, I think, some of the most compelling components of Jan's practice. What it does, in just a few words, is boldly reject two commonly held assumptions about the production of art. One is artistic inspiration, where does the artist's inspiration originate, and the other is how is that inspiration manifest through self-expression. So her tampering with these complex and fundamental assumptions becomes very apparent in the first nine words of this essay. And Jan, hi, and I wonder if you would like to read those that one sentence to us, those few words. Hi, Linda. Animal tongues is a language I speak and sing. Now, this is a really provocative statement, and I thought perhaps together, Jan, you and I can help to decipher the implications of this sentence. Starting with the focus in this sentence on language, which is both spoken and Sung, I realize that you don't use that term metaphorically as if you were saying, does this painting speak to you, but you mean it quite literally. So I wonder if you could explain how it is that spoken and sung language factors so prominently in your art practice as a visual artist. The uh, animal tongues and my visual art are closely related. I feel that Animal tongues is, is a part of my body. It's my body speaking as well as the animal nature. And it acts as, as a bridge to the world beneath the surface. It helps me to see the world more clearly. And I actually feel that it's a voice of the beings in my visual art. They want to speak, and this is how it's coming out. So this voice, these voices, come through your larynx. They take the form of speech and song yet they don't really belong to you. You call them animal tongues. Can you explain your relationship between the sounds that you generate and the source of those sounds? So they come through your throat and you articulate them. The source is not the you that um, you generally identify as um, the human component of your, of, your, of your being. Well, the animal tongues are... They're, they're my body speaking, and they are the, the animals and the earth speaking. And it is a part of me because I'm, I'm a part of the earth. So it's all a part of me. Well, that's an interesting point. Are they specially a part of you, or do you think they're a part of our shared experience as humans on this earth? I think they're a part of our shared experience existing on the earth. They are my friends, but I believe that they're friends to all of us. And when I say they're my friends, they can be kind and wonderful and also um, pretty powerful and difficult, too. 
So can you explain again, did you invite them? Did you go through some process to elicit them? Did they come unbidden and somehow colonize your consciousness? That's an interesting question, and I can invite them. I do invite them to come out, but they really just come naturally. For instance, when I first started speaking in the language, it was as easy as breathing. It was like I had always done it. And the beings, they ask to come out or they say, I'm coming forth. I I need to express this. Can you describe the very first time you encountered this capacity? When I, the first time I ever spoke in animal tongues, that was in 1979 when I did a drawing called the tongue drawing, which was on tongue-shaped pieces of paper and waterproofed, and it was attached to a drinking water fountain, and the water would flow down the drawings, and they had to do with animal sexuality and courtship. And at that time, I was showing it at the Contemporary Art Center in Cincinnati. And then I just started speaking in this language. And I didn't even make the connection between the title tongue drawing and speaking in tongues until someone pointed it out to me. Were you fully conscious? Totally conscious, not in any kind of altered state at all. And could you comprehend the meaning of these sounds as you were uttering them? Comprehending the meaning only in the way that you can comprehend a painting or a sculpture. In other words, not in not so much in a verbal way, but in another way, which is sensuous and emotional and even spiritual. It's, a, it's another way of understanding. It's not linear. And that leads me to think, um, what is the role of the language you speak through animal tongues and what actually is manifest in your visual works of art? It helps me to get to that part of my brain or my existence that is totally in the moment and has a certain innocence, but that knowledge and innocence come together when I do it. And also, it brings forth a physicality that takes away my intellectualizing too much about my life or art or anything. It brings me down. It attaches me with the earth. It makes me a part of the earth. Do you feel like these sources of energy and insight that you're tapping actually direct you as an artist and help you or guide you in manifesting the visual components of your works of art? Do you necessarily happily submit to them? I do submit to them. They sort of take me by the hand and say, come on, let's go, and we dance together. You mentioned that sometimes they seem ferocious and sometimes very benign and kind. You seem then to be willing to take them to either of these zones and follow happily. Is that true? Yes. I'm not afraid of ferocious ones. I I may be afraid at times, but I do it anyway. And the product, when you're done, the product of the submissions to a ferocious being, can the viewers detect that, you think, when we observe the pastels and the paintings that, that you produce in the sculpture? I think the viewer can, although sometimes there are many layers that are involved in this, and sometimes what was ferocious is no longer, and sometimes what was benign becomes more powerfully active in a ferocious way. They cross boundaries a lot. I have a feeling the listeners are probably very curious to hear what these voices may seem like, so I wonder if you might not introduce us 
to, I, I think you were about to present us with more than one voice. And I'd just like to prepare listeners that this is a very interesting panel I've assembled for this purpose to explore and see if we can discover something about this mysterious interface between two forms of consciousness. One is human and the other is animal or mammalian. So that the listener is going to hear three different beings responding to a couple of questions that I've prepared. But if you were here, you would see two individuals, me, the interviewer, and Jan, the artist, because Jan is going to generate the voices of all three members of the panel. So I wonder if you might, Jan, introduce us to the two voices that they will be hearing, just as introduction to the answers that I'll be requesting of the three. So our listeners have discovered a lot from the brief introductions. I mean, each of these voices has clearly a distinct character, its own personality, and hopefully will present us with a unique perspective as we explore this murky zone between humans and non-humans. So I'd like to give all three persona an opportunity to weigh in on these issues and just to make certain that the readers understand that the two of the forms of delivery will be identical to the sources of, I guess we should say wisdom, these diverse voices in part. One is going to be jams and she'll speak in a recognizable mode of human consciousness, and the other two are going to be released from what we might call these dark recesses of the human brain, where capacities that we've inherited from a pre-evolutionary primeval ancestors still lurk. Dan, how do you feel about that statement? Are you comfortable with it? I think that's beautiful, yes. Okay, well, the implication is that we all have these capacities that they've languished in our brains, probably since the development of language itself, because that seemed to require a much more coherent form of cognition. So let's leap across this great time warp and see what happens when we ask Dan to reactivate our shared inheritance. And so I'd like to introduce these two voices to a question and give them the opportunity to provide a non-human perspective that, Jan, I hope you will help usher into our experience, make this leap between the human and the non-human more direct and tangible. So let's talk about something very, very simple, and that is, as living beings, we occupy the same physical environment. We are all members of a thing called planet Earth. It contains things like trees and cars. It consists of conditions like temperature and wind and light. It offers sensations like smell and sound. I wonder if you would ask the two voices their perspective on whether they think their non-human responses to these elements are similar to the way humans respond to them. I want to uh, answer first in the human voice and to say that I don't think that they are experienced the same way that the uh, human response is, for instance, if they saw a tree, if we see a tree, we see the word, we think the word tree quite often. This isn't always the case, but we think the word tree and then that affects the way we see the tree. But the animal consciousness 
sees the tree in a different way because it's a part of the tree. The tree is a part of it. And this is what the animal would say to that. Can you help interpret what they may have conveyed? Do they agree with each other? Are they providing different perspectives on this issue? I think it's a situation where they may agree in some ways and disagree in others, that they feel the tree, they are a part of the tree. One is actually may even be the tree, you know, and, and the other one may be climbing the tree. But they're closely related. They're as complex as, as all of the microcosms in the world and in the universe. You know, it's a complex thing. What has happened to separate humans? Well, I do think uh, one thing that happened was codified language, but of course we need that. And But the other thing is a fear of death and, uh, you know, our awareness of death and how we fear it. And also our perception of time, that we see time in a more linear way. We see past, present, and future, and that does contribute a lot to our seeing and perceiving the world differently. When these voices are emerging from you, do you then become the tree and see the tree in different contexts than you normally would if these voices were not active at that moment? I do know this, that they can go through metamorphoses. What is the day that's metamorphosing? The animal beings. They can be the tree and they can change and, and they do change shapes. They do because they're constantly moving. It's like a constant dance. Human consciousness itself is so flexible and fluid and active and can leap over great distances of time and space through our imaginations. Is that the avenue into the animal consciousness? Yes, what I call the animal consciousness. Yes, I think it is. And yes, of course, many of us become in touch with that part of ourselves. And also, the human part of me or of our culture, I think, um, does want to dance with the animal. I, I think that they do want to come together. I think there is a split now, but I, I believe that there are many, many people who actually yearn to have a coming together. I wonder if you would like to travel back to the first time you encountered the animal tongues and ask yourself and your two voices to comment on sexuality and the power of that drive in living beings. Could the three of you do that, please? Yes. I'll start with a brief human comment that you know, sexuality is the life force. So it's the love of life that is what the sexual impulse is. And I think it has been misunderstood based on cultural and, and religious mores. But here is how the animals would talk about it or sing about it. Ein Taino, oi, ein Taino. 
Tani Ona or Nindi Koindai Onilan Oinda Go Oinda Go Oinda Go I have. I, I don't think I ever have um, recorded it, but in fact, I know I've never recorded it, but I can try it now. Would you like for me to try it? I would love to see what a dialogue might be. I could say right now I'm sitting here and I'm looking out the window at one of our cats in the snow and he's looking at me and he's very, very intrigued and he's in the windowsill. And so... This is how I feel like our communication would be. I'm looking at him and I'm saying, I wonder if you're cold out there. Are you cold? Do you feel a lot of love right now? I could go on, but this is one thing I'm experiencing. Take us to the next step. Now, you lift a piece of pastel and blank of paper in front of you. Can you tell us then, understand how this conversation might generate the work of art? Okay, well, in that case, I would probably be sitting in the middle of the piece because I work on the floor. I never work on a table. I work on the floor. And so I would be sitting in the middle of it. And so there would be very little English or human talk happening then. But I would be starting it out and I do take breaks and sing or just mutter a little but while I'm actually working I'm not doing the language it's more coming out in the physical mode I don't know if you want me to do some language that would be from that kind of being or what certainly it's so hard not to let the resonance of what you have done play itself out, but I think silences are probably not welcome in this context. But, you know, actually, if we're making this great leap back into the spoken world, I'd love to find out from you whether this has impacted your conscious way of being a human in the world by possibly affecting political opinions like animal rights and other issues related to animal-human relationships. Does this manifests itself in more pragmatic parts of your life or is it confined to your art practice? Oh, Linda, very much so. I've been involved in animal rights since the 1980s and both Alan, my partner, and I have been involved in animal rights since that time and uh, I'm still very active 
and uh, very much deeply care and I'm very aware of what is going on to the planet and uh, things that are happening ecologically to the whole planet and things that are happening to animals in research, to animals in puppy mills, for example. I could go on and on and on. So yes, there is very much definitely a political component to this. Does that political component become part of the narrative of the works of art that you've produced? Do you think that through experiencing them, a viewer might also gain greater sensitivity to animal beings in the world and that that might translate into behavioral changes that would be more protective of animals? I certainly hope so. And I can say that throughout the 30 years that I've been working on this work having to do with the animal nature, there have been periods that my own work was very, very much in tune with uh, animal abuse and then periods where the work was more in tune with spiritual aspects of the animals. So I do know that I receive emails from people really all over the globe about my work and the effect it's had on them or whether or not they were involved before in animal rights. Often they are, or and they feel a great deal of empathy, but in some cases it's helped raise their awareness. And I would imagine that that awareness would be intensified if they simultaneously experience the sound of the animal tongues and the visual demonstration of that impulse. Have you exhibited the visual works of art with the sound component? Yes, I have. In the beginning, I didn't. But then later, I started exhibiting, for instance, an installation, and uh, then it also had a, an audio tape of the animal tongues. And then in later periods, I started performing it, holding animal sculptures and singing through the animal sculpture heads. And I've also included it as an audio component to paintings, too, not just the sculpture. So yes, but this is more in the second half of the body of work that I've done, that I've been doing that. Well, since you're talking about progressions in terms of sharing the work with the audience, I wonder if you could talk about the progression within your art career. Now, you've been doing this for over 30 years, is that correct? Yes. Has this sensitivity developed on your part? Has your relationship with the animal beings become intensified or diminished? Are you always compatible, having gone through times when perhaps they retreat and don't want to be as accessible to you? I mean, how has the trajectory been over this very long period of time? Oh, I think that's a good question because if I'm not working, if, if I, say, take a month off from working, which is very rare, but if I do that, I do feel that they retreat. And sometimes they, I honestly feel like their feelings are hurt or something, but they really want me to bring them forth. You know, another thing, I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but when I'm working with the uh, pastels, these beings come out in the visual art through the caressing of the surface. This is also true with the sculptures when I'm doing the, the clay sculptures. The beings emerge through the actual caressing of the surface. So I believe that there's a large element of love in this. You know, that they want to feel loved. They want to come out and be heard. It seems like a great celebration of a union that maybe too few of us have ever experienced. Do you feel blessed? Oh, yes, but sometimes it's difficult. <laughs> it's not always easy to bring them 
forth, and sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes they're angry, for instance. Sometimes they're angry. Sometimes they're dangerous. You know, they're certainly not always benign and loving. They're all things. They're joyous. They're angry. They're capricious. They're shadow. They have shadow. And uh, there's another thing I wanted to say, you know, as much as I love the innocence of the animal and I do feel that the animal nature is innocent, there is an element in the world that is shadow, and that comes through in my work too. So I have to deal with that because I'm living in the world and have to deal with that. I sincerely hope that those who are listening to this podcast will take the time to become familiar with the products that you produce, Jam. They are powerful, and somehow being able to trace their power to this very amazing source I think really does help the viewer deal with the power and find a channel into his or her own life. So I personally am very appreciative of you for having blessed my life with this experience, and it would be amazing if listeners to this podcast perhaps weighed in and told us about their responses as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. 